this week were uh, tying in from John chapter 3, tying in the fact that God so loved the world. God so loved the world. John chapter 3 ties in with John chapter 4 in such a significant way. And you remember that verse in chapter 3, like verse 16? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal or everlasting life. So he says that in chapter 3 and he goes on to demonstrate it in chapter 4. I just reminded uh, the, the, the service at Huntington, I, I didn't remember this, but you know, as they're writing these books of the Bible, that wasn't verse one, chapter one, verse one. Like this is, a, this is more like a letter or a book that you read through in a continuum. And so when they see, they don't see, okay, now we're in chapter four, they're seeing this thought that was introduced in chapter three and continues into chapter four that God so loved the world and this is how he demonstrated it. So look at, look at the two stories on either side, God so loved the world. Nicodemus and this Samaritan woman in chapter four. So we're gonna look at the Samaritan woman. Before we get into it, look at this quote. I had to put this on here. Uh, because I want you to see it. Just think through this for a minute. The Samaritan woman contrasts sharply with Nicodemus. Like they're exact opposites. He was seeking, she was indifferent. He was a respected ruler. She was an outcast. I mean, we're gonna see that she was an outcast of the outcasts. He was serious, she was flippant. He was a Jew, but she was a despised Samaritan. He was presumably moral, and she was certainly immoral. He was learned in religious matters, like he knew, he knew how to do church Jewish style. Like he knew everything there was. He was the teacher. But she was ignorant. Yet the key thing is it ties both, yet they, they both needed to be born again. Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. They both needed to be born again. And so chapter four, well, I'm gonna pick up in verse four, but um, we see Jesus' pursuit. Jesus' pursuit of this outcast, this Samaritan woman. And I'll paint the picture so it'll help you to understand it. But Jesus said, or it says this of Jesus, and he had to pass through Samaria. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. All right, geography lesson, all right? Fancy map right here. Okay, right here's Judea. And he was right in this area near the Jordan River, baptizing, and he needed to go to Galilee. He was en route to Galilee. And so where would you pass through to get to Galilee? You'd pass through Samaria, Right, that's the natural thing. If I'm here, I need to be here, I'm gonna pass through here. But the Jews didn't take that route. They did everything they could to avoid setting a foot in Samaria. And so as you start to understand the, the, the idea here, um, the kingdom around the season of Solomon, it makes sense when you understand a little bit of Old Testament Bible history, that the, the southern king, the Judah, the kingdom of Judah here, this area split off after Solomon and the northern kingdoms set their, their kingdom up in Samaria. 
what started off as a town became a region. And what happened is, as the northern kingdom, they, they came into, um, they came in, they were taken away in captivity into Assyria. And so when that happened, Babylon took Judah and Judea and, and, uh, the northern kingdoms were taken by Assyria. So the Jews that were left behind in Samaria, they, they began to intermarry with Gentile pagans. And over time, as, as the majority of the nation of the northern kingdoms were away, there's this people group that was forming that was part Jew, part pagan. What happened is they began to worship the pagan gods. They, it was like this weird quasi mix of, of Jewish tradition, but mixed with paganism. And so that's what you get with Samaria. When they're despising them, they're not just despising them as rejects, as in like a, like a, I don't know, like what they're made of a half breed is what they're calling. But more than that, it was morality. These people were worshiping false gods and so as they were walking around, they did everything they could to avoid Samaria. But Jesus, you remember the verse, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. They avoided it. Jesus went to it and not just through it. I believe this, by the way. A lot of people see this as a time, like he has to go here and he doesn't have enough time to get to Galilee, so he had to cut through. I believe what, when he, we say he had to is because there was a certain woman at a well. He had an appointment. And God had placed him here at this well. And so look at verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was, was from his journey, Jesus, the son of God, being tired from his journey. We see the humanity of Jesus there. He was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. How many women? A woman said so they came at the sixth hour. If it was based on Hebrew timeline, that would mean noon. If it was based on Roman timeline, that would mean 6 p.m. Reality is whether it was noon or 6 p.m., there was a woman. Women didn't go to the well by themselves. They went as gatherings. And so this not only points to the fact that she's a Samaritan, an outcast reject, but she's an outcast of the outcasts. She is set aside. And here you see Jesus taking, going to the isolated person and seeking them, pursuing that isolated person. His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Not just a Samaritan, but a woman of Samaritan, Samaria. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Literally, they treated them like dogs. And this is based on tradition. It's not based on Bible. This is based on tradition. So listen, as you feed your dog, would you eat out of your dog's bowl? 
right? You wash it and you can eat dinner out of it. You, that, that bowl is for your dog. You don't pick that bowl up and set it on your table for the meal the next day. Well, their mindset was, if a, if a Samaritan person touched any of my utensils, that's the dog's utensil now. That bowl is no longer mine, it's the dog's. And Jesus, a Jew, was going to this woman and asking, can I have a drink from your utensil, your jar? He's, he's stepping over a whole lot of cultural boundaries here to pursue this woman. Listen, women culturally never talk to, or men never talk to women in that culture, right? And it's not just because they're insecure or like a nervous freshman at school, right? It's, it's because culturally, like, it's like a distinction. We're keeping this distinction. Men do not pursue and talk to women. And more than that, Jews don't pursue and talk to Samaritans. But think about this. A Jewish rabbi would never talk to a sinner. And Jesus, you see a Jewish man, Jewish man, that was a rabbi pursuing a sinner woman of the Samaritans. And so verse 10, it says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying, give me a drink. If you really knew who you were talking to, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you realized who you're talking to, you would be pursuing him because you need what he's got. Jesus was talking, uh, this is a veiled statement of living water. Let me help you understand here. In a well, when there was living water, it's the idea that it continually flowed. And so you'd have to go way down into a well to, to get a hold of that good water that's constantly, it's like a, a duct underneath. And, and if you could get down that low into the depths of this well, it would spring forth good water. So she's thinking, man, that's, there's good water down there. You do have a long enough rope. Is your bucket going to reach down there? Right? He's talking about something else. John 7, I can't wait to cover this in a couple weeks. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's that deep water that constantly flows. Now this, and by the way, that deep water that constantly flows, I didn't mention it the earlier services, that kind of water, even when there's a drought, that water's still flowing. No matter what's going on in life, if you have a river of flowing water, it never stops based on your life situation. He's talking about a living water that's so deep that it's not affected by life. Now this is, he said about the spirit. And John gave us this little commentary of why he said this. He said about the spirit whom those believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not glorified. Jesus is really speaking of the spirit of God. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Where do you get the water that continually flows that's not affected by drought? Are you greater than our father Jacob, 
The one that dug this well, the one that provided water for generation after generation, are you better than him? What's the answer? Absolutely he is. He gave us well and drank from it himself and as did his sons and his livestock and it's continually fed all these people for all these generations. And Jesus is saying something else. Jesus said, anyone who drinks of this water, Jacob's well, the water from here will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. It's quenched the thirst. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's this thing that can't stop. It wells up from within. And, and Jesus speaking, like you hear these words and think as a woman, as a Samaritan that's bringing buckets every day to this well, drawing up water and carrying it back. Jesus is saying, I see this picture. Come unto me, you who are, are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. You can rest from your work. Jesus is speaking some deeper things here. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water anymore. I, I want whatever that is that satisfies the thing that takes care of my thirst. And so you see his pursuit in those first real 15 verses, the pursuit of Jesus. When I look at his perception, she did not get it. But Jesus was going to step from this kind of um, ambiguous story, like she's really not getting what he's trying to say. And so he steps in and gets a little more personal. He perceives things, divinely perceives things about her. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Go get your husband and come back to me. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus knew that. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you are now with, you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And by the way, there's a clear distinction between marriage and living together. But this idea he put, like he's putting her sin before her. She's a Samaritan. Why would he put all her sin in front of her? He, she's outside the promises of God. Ironically, as you walk around, you begin to share uh, truth with people around you. Sometimes people say, you leave your Jesus stuff to yourself. Let me live my life. And we, we're compelled in our heart with something way deeper that we understand that every human being that has ever walked this earth is held accountable before a holy God because of the law. And so it compels us to say, man, be reconciled back to God through his son, through Jesus. And we see this kind of evangelism today that, that doesn't embrace law, doesn't confront people in the sin that they're caught in. So because they don't realize they're sinners, they're not really needing a savior. They don't think they need a savior. Ray Comfort said this, um, evangelist from Australia, and uh, it's really, if you 
pull up his videos. He's on YouTube. He's on Facebook. Any way you can get a hold of him. But he's, he's going around the beaches of Southern California. And he's having these conversations, helping them to draw, to understand, man, you're a sinner. We're all sinners. Well, I'm a good person. No, you're, we're all sinners. There's none righteous. No, not one. He said this, the biblical way to express God's love to sinner is to show him how great his sin is using the law and then give him the incredible grace of God in Christ. People don't realize they need a savior until they understand they're a sinner. The essence is what Martin Lloyd-Jones said, said the essence of evangelism is to start preaching the law. Start helping people to understand how they failed God. I'm a sinner. And it is because the law has not been preached that we have so much superficial evangelism. Let me explain superficial evangelism. Superficial evangelism is like the love of God. Man, Jesus loves you so much and he just wants you to have a good life. So you need to say yes to his eternal gift. And you know what I'm saying? Like it's, we're drawing them to say yes to Jesus without recognizing first that I'm a sinner. That the wrath of God abides on me as a sinner. And were it not for the grace of Jesus that's extended to every lost person, they need to understand they're a sinner. Now, think about it this way. Nobody goes to the beach thinking, man, I need to bring a lifesaver down there. I need to bring an inner tube so that in case I drown, I'm going to get down there. No, when you are in a position where you're about to drown, you cry out for a lifesaver. You, you need it so urgently. Before that moment when you're just hanging out swimming and having fun, you're not thinking I need a savior. I don't, I don't need a lifesaver. You remember Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, if somebody doesn't realize they're lost, they don't need a way. If somebody doesn't realize that they're blind and can't see, they don't realize they need truth. If somebody doesn't realize that they are dead in their trespasses and sin, then they don't realize they need life. So Jesus is just another person that lived 2,000 years ago. He did good things. He's a good teacher. He's not really their savior. And this cuts me to the heart Ray Comfort says this, by preaching a lawless gospel, the church is ushering multitudes through hell's broad gate, a gate that is oiled, by, oiled smooth by modern evangelism. Can you imagine that we might be preaching a gospel all across this America that is so silky smooth that you're not helping people to understand that they are sinners in need of a savior? God did not just set aside your sin and say, it's okay. God took your sin and put it on his son and the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus' body. And Jesus bore the shame, embarrassment, and punishment of your sin so that when he turns around and say, your sins are forgiven, it's not, it's okay, buddy. It's a radical offer of salvation. And so they come to this promise. Um, this promise that he makes is so wonderful that's, that's there for us too. Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And he got up in her business. 
started getting personal about her life and he began to tell her things about her that only she knows. The woman said, I perceive that had to have been from God. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem, you as Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. It's funny, when you get to this point, I perceive you're from God, what's the first person, first time you say, you know, I'm a pastor and I never share a lot of times when I'm out and about, I don't go around and say, yeah, I'm a pastor um, down the road because people start acting weird. I'm a believer first. I'm a Christian. I'm born again. And sometimes I never get a chance to have a real conversation when they find out I'm a pastor because they're like, well, I go down to that church down in the corner, right? The, the thing about it is it's, it's in the heart. Jesus is saying not, it's not about a location. Sorry, guys. It's not about a location. It's not about a mountain. I love mountains. It's not about a mountain. I love church. It's not about coming to church. It's not about going to the temple in Jerusalem. He's talking about a worship that comes from within. Jesus said, woman, believe me that the hour is coming when neither the mountain nor Jerusalem will you worship the Father, but you will worship what you do not know. You as a Samaritan that don't have a clue about the Bible, don't have a clue about the Old Testament, you worship what you don't even know. We as Jews, he's saying, worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. All the promises came through the Jews. But the hour is coming. Listen to this promise. The hour is coming and is now here. Jesus speaking of himself that was about to die on a cross, be buried, rise again and and ascend into heaven and give himself through the spirit. The hour is now here when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth. Spirit in the inner man, like deep in my heart from within and in truth for such or for the father seeking such people to worship him from within worship isn't on Sunday morning here it's not about coming to church it's we are the church and when you wake up in the morning you put your feet on the floor and you say Lord thank you for today Lord you're good to me or may I be, may I not mess this day up. You know, you, you get up, maybe you're a terrible singer, you get in the shower and you sing at the top of your lungs, your family saying, shut up. <laughs> so you're in the shower, taking a shower and singing because it's welling up within you. This, this heart to worship the creator God that died for your sins has given you life. He said, God is Spirit. He's unseen. You can't see him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit. Inside, as opposed to rituals. Inside and in truth. So I think about worship in environments. uh, Every environment is different. You walk into one church and everybody's hands are up and you walk in and you're like, oh, it's going to be like this now. And so you're kind of like, you don't want to be the weird guy out. So you're kind of, you've heard comedians talk about like holding the TV, holding the widescreen TV, the different kinds of worship that your hands motion. Well, then sometimes you go into church and you realize 
I guess we're not raising hands. So what happens is you stand there like, you know, you're singing the songs. And it's like, this is not our hands raising church, you know. What happens is we allow our external, like what's happening around us to determine how we respond in our heart to God. And I, I, I'm going to be very transparent. Sometimes when you raise your hand, like I'm always conscious of this, may it not be of my pride. I, sometimes we raise our hand and it's because we want to be seen and um, our pride, it causes us to respond like this because I want people to think I'm spiritual. Well, in the same way, sometimes the reason I keep my hands right here is because of my pride. I don't want people to think I'm crazy. What if we, what if we didn't let people around us determine how we respond to God? And what if we, out of the welling up from within, not about ritualism, not about that, but just an expression of praise. I, I didn't mention this in the first two services. Um, man, uh, Nick has said week in and week out all these different pictures of praise. And he said seven weeks in a row about lifting your hands and praise to God. There's a specific word. And it's crazy. Like it's hard for us to express because we're trapped by fear and by pride sometimes. But let, don't worry about what's going on around you. You respond like the Holy Spirit is stirring within you. Um, and uh, let, me, let me turn it to his point. The point, verse 23, this is his main thing he wants us to see in this passage. I believe the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ or the anointed one. I know he's coming. I know enough Bible to know that Jesus is coming. Or not Jesus, but the Messiah. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. Everything we need to know, he'll tell us then. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And don't, don't miss this in here. He is not just saying, I'm the guy that's talking to you. He's saying, the, I am the I am. I am the I am. You remember when Moses was like, who am I supposed to tell the people that sent me? Like, who, who am I supposed to tell them sent me to them? He said, tell them the I am sent me. Tell them that. Remember Jesus later on, I believe in John, uh, they're confronting him. He said, uh, he said this phrase, before Abraham was... I am. Jesus, as a man walking this earth, was saying, before Abraham was, I am. He is the Messiah. He is the eternal God. And Jesus was saying this to her, and look at her response, verse 27. Or, or no, not her response, in a minute. Um, it's amazing the timing. The, all of a sudden, the disciples show up. Just then, the disciples show up. It wasn't a split second before. It's, it's as if the timing happened exactly like it happened because he had something to share with her. And then they show up and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. It's men don't talk to women. Jews don't talk to Samaritans. And heaven forbid, a rabbi does not talk to a sinner, certainly in public. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? They didn't wonder they're just like my goodness why is he talking to her 
And the woman left her water jar and went away. She took off running, and left everything she had behind and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She saw him for who he was, the Messiah. It's crazy. I, I was stirred up last night thinking about this and I thought um, just a heavy burden about how we as the church deal with evangelism. Um, we, we teach systematic evangelism. What that means, like, we teach, like, all right, you need to, A, when you're sharing the gospel, say, A, admit you're a sinner, B, believe, like, we teach people a systematic way so that they can share the gospel, right? And we'll have seminars, people will come all over the place that if somebody asks this question, have this answer. And then if somebody asks this question, have this answer. And so we've trained people how to talk when they evangelize. But you cannot teach witnessing. You cannot teach testifying. Because you've either had an encounter with the living Jesus or you haven't. So to fill the words of a person that's never witnessed and never can testify because they haven't seen themselves... It's kind of faking it. Imagine in a courtroom, we have a witness and we've called one witness and they apparently have seen the crime and so they put their hand on the Bible. They say, man, I swear that I will tell the truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. And so they go on the witness stand and you ask them, what did you see? What did you witness? And the testimony of that person is the thing that they witnessed. In some cases, I hope it's rare, but some cases, the person that's on the witness stand may not have actually seen the crime. And if that's the case, then they have to crookedly do this. They have to get with that person and say, all right, when you're on the witness stand, you have to say this, then say this, then say this. And you tell them everything they need to say to appear as if they're witnessing. You know what happened to this lady? She didn't know any Bible. She didn't, I mean, very twisted stuff, but she encountered the living Jesus and she ran into town to tell everybody that's evangelism. Why is it that there's no power in how we share the gospel? Because we're trying to tell people what they need to say when they go and evangelize. The call is, man, if you've had an encounter with the living Jesus, go and tell. You can't hold it in. I've got to say it. And so you turn now, the, 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 his purpose, his, that was his point to show him as the Christ, um, his purpose. The last couple verses, and I'm only going to cover a couple of these verses. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. Uh, they had just been in town picking up McDonald's and they came back out and had the food and said, Rabbi, eat. Why aren't you eating? And Jesus said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So us, we think, man, did he get Chipotle when I went and got him McDonald's, right? How did they respond? So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? They're thinking, did you get food from somewhere else? And Jesus was talking about something else. He said, my food 
the thing that wakes me up in the morning, the thing that sustains me every day. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And you have to see, verse 35, this is the last verse we'll cover today. You have to see Jesus. He had just had this moment at the well with the Samaritan woman. She booked it into town to tell everybody she knew. And, and these people are coming out from the town to meet Jesus. And Jesus had this opportunity to just teach his disciples right there. Just this moment. And as people are coming, you imagine they're starting to come out. And Jesus is teaching his disciples. And there's fields all around. They're out in the country. It says, do not say there are yet four months. Then comes the harvest. But look. He's saying, don't say that in four months the harvest is coming. You look at the fields, the natural things. But look, you imagine him pointing at these Samaritan people, the outcasts, the nobodies, the outcasts of the outcasts saying, look, lift up your eyes. See, the fields are white for harvest. You see the heart of Jesus in this. And so I want to I leave just two things, just nothing extremely profound but powerful to me. Um, God so loved the world that he pursues even the outcasts. God so loved, he didn't just pursue the, the church kids, the Nicodemuses of the world that know a lot of Bible, know a lot of Old Testament, know how to act in the temple. He's pursuing the person that is the outcast of the outcast. God so loved the world, verse uh, chapter three, verse 16, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, and that whosoever included the outcasts. Still today, God is still pursuing the outcasts. If you would say, man, that's me. I didn't grow up in church. I didn't have a mommy and daddy that loved me. I've been left and forgotten. Maybe I've been an orphan. Maybe I came from pretty rough season. Maybe I spent time in prison. Maybe I've been strung out for years. Maybe I'm just starting to come out of a season of alcohol. Maybe I am literally the outcast of the world. Jesus loved the world. God loved the world so much that he pursues even the outcast. And the second thing, and I'm talking to the believers in this room and online, God so loves the world that he equips his church to pursue even the outcasts. Listen, when you drive around Huntington, you don't have to go very many blocks before you see the outcast. You know, when you drive through there, you see, sometimes you'll see somebody shaking on the side of the road because they're in a point where they're without the drug that they need and they just need somehow just looking for the next time that they can get over this and cope with it. When you see them, does your heart break? Does your heart, do you understand that God so loved that outcast that he's pursuing that outcast through you? You see the person at a state university that is an absolute atheist that's fighting against anything that has to do with Jesus. With, with all the effort, God is pursuing that person. And he's equipped you to pursue even that outcast. I love the verse. If you write this down and look up that passage, 
But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, I would write it down. It's one of those verses that is on the tip of my tongue all the time. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. It's where Paul said, we are ambassadors for Christ. We're going in, in his stead. I, I am sent from him. I, I am an ambassador of Christ. And he says this phrase, God making his appeal through us. So the God that loves the world is making his appeal through us. He's equipped his church. He's using his church to pursue even the outcast. And the message he says in uh, chapter 5, verse 20 says, be reconciled to God. That is the thing you herald at the top of every street corner in this tri-state. That even the outcasts be reconciled to God. 